Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. All 20 long-term tenants have been moved out of a Rotorua lodge for safety reasons after it was found to be an extremely high fire risk and that doors were deadbolted shut at night. The spa lodge in the city's CBD was issued two dangerous building notices, the second after a fire broke out on its deck just last week. RNZ believes four other hostels potentially linked to the spa lodge will have safety inspections today. We're joined now by Rotorua Mayor Tania Tapsil. Uh, kia ora, good morning. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, good morning. Yes, hi, sorry. <laughs> Slight glitch with the audio there. Uh, it sounds like there's some very dangerous living conditions uh, in Rotorua at that lodge. How concerned are you about that? Yes, look, it was incredibly disappointing um, because we had already had to uh, provide them with a dangerous building notice prior. Um, so just this month, so uh, to have a fire, um, very small fire breakout, but of course, as you've mentioned, the risk around the building and the inadequate uh, fire safety measures, it has been disappointing that, you know, this could have been a close call. So we have had issues uh, with this. Overall, the accommodation in Adorchida is actually amazing. That's why we are a top 10 destination. Um, so as a mayor, it is always disappointing. When we do have a few, uh, we're in the reputation of the many. Can you confirm that uh, four other buildings uh, possibly linked to the spa lodge are going to be inspected today? Uh, I can confirm that we do have very similar um, accommodation types that uh, do have some relevance will be investigated. I won't confirm who because we haven't yet turned up to their premise. However, the Rotorua Lakes Council has been incredibly proactive um, here in Rotorua when these issues have ar- arose around whether it's backpackers and hostels or emergency housing motels. We've proactively tackled them, which is why we've had a reduction of about 60% of emergency housing motels. But these backpackers pose an interesting challenge and this This was, again, the Loafers Lodge um, unfortunate challenge that the country saw where actually people are allowed to have tenancies in previous backpackers because they're classed as boarding houses. Now, it's very difficult as a regulator, as a council, to be able to manage this because in motels we can clearly say, hey, this is set up for tourism accommodation, uh, not not with the essential requirements for residential, but when it comes to backpackers, it is a bit more difficult. So we are currently aware of around 11 backpackers possibly providing tenancies, and we will proactively, as we already have, be encouraging operators to choose, are you a boarding house and do it well, do it yeah, safe, no, or are you a backpacker? Yeah, no, and you are talking about being proactive, and yet these uh, buildings are still there and still being tenanted. Uh, going back to the uh, building at the uh, Spa Lodge, which at the uh, tenants have been moved out of. I mean, extremely high fire risk. How bad was that building? Well, uh, the FEMS report, the Fire and Emergency New Zealand report, did conclude uh, that they consider that in the event of a fire, injury or death to any persons in the building uh, or persons on the property is likely. Now, that is very serious. That's why urgent action was taken. Um, Within 24 hours, that building uh, needed to uh, have the occupants removed. But how how was it that it wasn't known about that? you know, what sounds like a death trap, um, that it wasn't notified until just a few days ago or, or vacated. Yes, so um, the dangerous building notice was issued in, and 
the operators are allowed under their rights time to rectify the situation. Um, however, not long after that, there was a fire breakout. So the timing was, you know, serendipitous, whatever you want to call it, but it just happened to be around the same time that we were already inspecting it that then a fire broke out. And so then the council was able to act quickly and to remove people from the building. How Otherwise, many other people do you think are, are living in those potentially deadly conditions? Across the country, it's unknown. In, in, in Rotorua? In we we believe that there are around 11 backpackers possibly providing tenancies. We have to remember, though, that at the core of this issue are building owners that are allowing tenancies to operate that are often at very high rental prices and they do need to be held to account. So we as a council have been doing that and we will continue to do that because we cannot accept people living in buildings that are not appropriate or safe. So you think after today's inspections you'll see more people moved out of lodges? What we will see is lodges and backpackers and anyone in our community providing this sort of accommodation know and be put on notice that they must ensure their building is safe because we cannot allow people who are at most vulnerable having to pay at times ridiculously high rents to live in inadequate buildings. So we essentially are putting the owners of those buildings on notice. Thank you for your time this morning. That is Rotorua Lakes Mayor Tania Tapsil. Security guards who initiated a fair pay agreement are unhappy their gains are about to be lost. Under the new coalition government's 100-day plan, fair pay agreement legislation will be scrapped. Wellington security guard Rosie Ngakopu was involved in the campaign to win the new system. She told me earlier that with fair pay agreements, uh, there was supposed to be a game-changer. The fair pay agreement is, is, is such an important document for us workers because it, it gives us the ability to bargain for to improve conditions, health and safety, our levels of pay. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to help uh, build a future, uh, to put a, a future of, of our sector industries. It's very sad. Yeah, what is your reaction? I'm in a mixed bag, so there's a, there's a lot of anger, um, but there's also a lot of sadness because um, we, we don't have the ability now if they remove um, the FPAs. We won't have the ability to bargain to improve the conditions and everything else that we need um, for the workers, can you, workers. Can you not bargain as you would have done in the past, you know, through a union dealing with your employer? Um, we can, but um, to, to a degree when it comes to bargaining. Um, so I've been on the bargaining table um uh, for the first time last year, and it, it was very hard to um, uh, uh, it's very hard to bargain for really um, good good conditions because that um, they say that it's it's not good enough or uh, the reasons that we bring to the table is, 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 is there's not enough evidence and things like that. How did the fair pay agreement make it easier to bargain? Uh, because there was conditions that were not covered in security. Uh, we found out there was quite a few laws that are not covered in security. So this is why we've bargained for that fair pay agreement so that we can have certain conditions to be added so we can bargain for those conditions on the bargaining table. And what were those conditions? Uh, so one of them was the Part 6A, uh, transfer of um, transferable guards. So that means that uh, if our contract, if we lose our contract, so if we were working for a security company um, and we lost the contract there to a different company, to another security company, 
we would that would mean that we would lose work. So in terms of Part 6A that's under FPAs, we're able to uh, move with our site so we can transfer our working conditions from uh, one company into the new one. Uh-huh. And we're able to stay on that side. We're able to have a job, whereas if we didn't have Part 6A and we didn't have FPAs, we would have to find a new job. And that is something that happens quite a bit in the security industry. Yes, when we're losing uh, when we're losing contracts, when our businesses are going in for contact contract tendering, if our company loses that contract, we lose the job. The National Party uh, says that fair pay agreements uh, make the workplace less agile and flexible, uh, and make all workers beholden to a union agenda. They think it's bad for workers and for employers. What's your response to that? No, that's not true. Um, because I've grown with this document. There's a lot of leaders in the union that have grown with this document, that understands this document. Because we want to improve, we want to see a future of our, our security industry. The way we're going now, we don't see a future. 30 years of bad um, bad, um, bad conditions on our sites, um, our, our, our security officers getting hurt on the job. I mean, it's it's been in the media uh, through covid our guards getting hurt on the job. Why are we getting hurt on the job? Because the public are not happy. And yet we're trying to do whatever we can to keep everyone safe. Because that's our job. At the same time, we have to keep ourselves safe. They're talking about agile and all this stuff. No. What about the, the conditions of improvement for our people to go and work? We're going to grow our power and we're going to come and, we're going to come and lobby and keep our, our document, um, keep our FPA, because it's worth saving. That was uh, Wellington security guard Rosie Ngakopu, who had been involved in negotiating a fair pay agreement uh, in her job as a security guard. It is 13 minutes to seven now. Well, a new government has unveiled what policy it wants to push through in the first three months in office, including moving into urgency to debate five bills before Christmas. Prime Minister Christopher Luxon said yesterday the 100-day plan was, quote, hugely ambitious, but the coalition government agreed uh, addressing the 49 actions in the plan was needed if it was to quickly rebuild the economy, uh, ease the cost of living and deliver better public services. We'll be joined now by, well, the person in charge of ushering it through the House, really, the leader of the House, Chris Bishop. Good morning to you. Good morning, Colin. When will we, the first day of actual debates, when will you get some legislation on the floor? Uh, it'll start on Tuesday the 12th of December. So next week's the sort of ceremonial stuff at Parliament, the state opening, the commission opening, the judges come in, we have the speech from the throne with the Governor-General and then the first question time and maiden statements and all that stuff and then um, we'll start legislating the next week after that, mm. so the 12th of December. Okay, then you're into it. All right, 49 proposals, from what I can see, at least 20 of them, possibly more, are about repealing things that the last government did what what is in this 49 proposal plan for your 100 days that will help in the short term address the uh, cost of living crisis that is affecting many new zealanders well if you're buying a ute for example the repeal of the ute tax will mean it'll be cheaper to buy a ute um, after the 31st of december this year because we're getting rid of that and repeating the clean car discount scheme as well which meant that people who bought teslas got um, free money and um, people who paid people buying utes probably aren't doing it that tough are they Oh, well, for the farmers and tradies out there, it might not necessarily agree with that. But, um, I mean, that's one thing. I mean, the first bill we're going to put through under urgency is the bill to uh, res- uh, put the Reserve Bank back to a single focus on fighting uh, inflation and price stability. I think that's 
uh, very important. We've picked that bill deliberately firstly. And, and, and uh, it may well help, but, but, but that's not going to do anything in the short term, is it? That's, that's going to take months and months before the Reserve Bank starts following that mandate and has an impact. That's right. But you can't do everything straight away. And uh, um, obviously Nicola Willis has indicated that there's going to be a mini-budget before Christmas and we're going to start laying out the state of the government books uh, and start uh, getting some fiscal discipline back into the government uh, as well. Uh, and these, a lot of the things we're going to do straight away are things that uh, are necessary uh, that the last government rammed through uh, that we disagree with, that we want to immediately say uh, and, and uh, legislate mm. to stop. So one thing, for example, is the fair pay agreements. All three parties campaigned on that. We have a mandate to uh, repeal that. We're going to do that. Uh, we are also going to stop work on stupid projects like Lake Onslow, for example, um, and, and other things like that. You are also, though, uh, going to put a pause on WHO regulations to put a public interest clause in, uh, which, you know, in the first 100 days, yet, you know, you've got nothing in there on, on tax cuts. Uh, well, uh, we committed to our tax package, and you'll see um, further details about that from uh, Nicola Willis in due course. The issue with the WHO is that, um, not an expert on this, but as I understand it, something has to be lodged with um, the WHO by the 1st of December, so that's literally in a day or so's time, uh, and um, uh, that's of particular interest to New Zealand first, and so we've agreed to uh, do that very, very quickly. But there is actually a, a deadline for... Um, the, the international um, negotiations on that. Okay, here's the thing I don't quite understand the, about what we've heard over the last few days. A lot of talk about uh, economic vandalism, the state of the books, big surprises, uh, you know, really tight finances. Yet at the same time, we learn in the coalition agreement, coalition agreement that you'll be providing landlords with effectively what looks like about an extra billion dollars, at the very least a backdated tax deductibility, which we knew was coming, but we didn't know it would be at that extent, a billion dollars more. I mean, how can you claim that there's sort of a financial hole when you're suddenly springing a, an extra billion dollars on people? Well, N- Nicola Willis, as Minister of Finance, is working through uh, that, and she'll be making announcements and taking advice on that in due course. What I would say to you when it comes to interest deductibility more generally for uh, rent, residential property uh, owners and providers is that that is re- returning, um, phased in over time, by the way, but phased in over time, returning to standard tax, uh, orthodox tax principles, which is that you tax um, profit and not uh, revenue. Uh, And so we're just saying that um, interest is an expense for every other provider of a business. Interest is an expense that you can deduct. Uh, So we're going back to that for uh, landlords and the government's carve out of landlords um, and essentially imposing new uh, taxes on them was unprincipled, and it's also had the effect of driving up rents. It was very clear evidence. But why backdate it? That's what I, I mean. You're housing minister. I mean, I don't understand that. That's the new bit that that, in the context of very tight books, seems surprising. Well, um, Nicola Willis will be making um, further announcements about that. Okay, let's talk about infrastructure because that is your key role, really, one of the big roles. Um, you've in this hundred day plan, you've talked about a a new fast tracking provision. Will this mean that in future, infrastructure projects, and I'm not quite sure how big we're talking here, but potentially obviously big, will be decided by ministers rather than, say, the councils or the EPA or whoever else? Uh, Sort of. So we've got two things going on on the RMA. Um, First is we've got to get rid of the former government's um, National Built Environment Act and Spatial Planning Act. Um, they, we sought a mandate for that at the election, all three parties did, and uh, we received that mandate. Those, those laws will not work. They make 
our laws more complicated actually and there's a whole lot of reasons why we want to get rid of it. So we're doing that before Christmas. In our first 100 days, that's the second thing is in our first 100 days we will introduce a bill um, to fast track consent and in relation to your specific question it's a bit of both. So um, we campaigned and so did New Zealand First actually uh, on a uh, proposal where ministers would be able to um, essentially select projects and refer them to an expert panel and the, basically the way it works in plain English is um, that the legislation and the ministerial decision will essentially grant the consent and then the details of the consent, like all of the nitty gritty uh, of the actual details about the environmental effects and things, that will be worked So, so ministers will be making day. the call on big infrastructure projects around the country? Yes, that's what we campaigned on. And actually, um, the last government, to be fair to them, actually legislated the 13 projects um, almost directly during the COVID process. So there is precedent for this already. Sure. We're just going to make it a more expansionary... Will the public uh, still have plenty of opportunity to have a say? Will people be able to make objections? Will there be safeguards for the environment? Uh, yes, in relation to all of that. Um, but uh, we are one of the reasons why we want to do this is that we are keen to avoid long, multi-year planning processes and consent hearings um, that don't actually end up in a, with finality or certainty for people. Sometimes, the feedback I've had from industry and, and actually environmental groups too, is sometimes uh, people just want to know what the answer is. They'd rather know the answer's no um, in a year uh, than have to wait 10 years to find out the answer. No. Okay. The other aspect is the, the new fund, the, uh, what are we calling it now, the um, Regional Infrastructure Fund, which is similar to the Provincial Growth Fund. How, how will decisions be made for that? Will Shane Jones, for example, be part of the decision-making? Uh, so we're taking advice on that, and um, Minister Jones and I uh, will be making um, announcements about that, but... Um, yet to be determined exactly how it will work, but there's a $1.2 billion uh, capital funding commitment uh, over the three years uh, to regional infrastructure projects. And, is, that, uh, is that a slush fund? Uh, no, um, we'll, we'll be setting it up in a way that uh, is it's ministered well and diligently, and um, we're also setting because up... Because I've got to raise this, well. because you called the Provincial Growth Fund when you said uh, the PGF was Labour's reward to New Zealand First for supporting the coalition. The result is a slush fund that lacks transparency and is being treated by New Zealand First as a campaign chest for 2020. You also said the PGF is a giant waste of money. It's a great time to be a bureaucrat in Wellington, but if you're in the regions where jobs are needed, you're out of luck. Well, there were, there were definitely issues with the former Provincial Growth Fund, and I think Minister Jones would uh, accept that uh, as well. I don't want to speak for him, but uh, I, I think he would, he would accept that as well. Uh, we're interested in setting up a regional infrastructure fund, uh, and actually one of the, things, the good things the Provincial Growth Fund did was um, spend capital money in the regions on projects that would perhaps otherwise have missed out on funding. But you're telling uh, us, just fine, you're telling us that it's, not <laughs> that it's different somehow. I mean, are we supposed to believe that it's going to be different and it's going to be administered it's going to be different? different and you, it's going to be different, and you'll see in due course exactly why, Corrin. It's literally day three. So uh, let's just get our feet under the desk and get started on that, but we're going to uh, make that different. It's going to be a great fun, and I'm looking forward to working with Shane Jones on it. All right, very good. That is the, uh, well, the Infrastructure Minister, the Housing Minister, and the Minister, uh, well, the Leader of the House, Chris Bishop. 
Well, some Auckland councillors say that Mayor Wayne Brown is proposing to strip the city's assets to create his multi-billion dollar Auckland Future Fund. The fund would be made up of money from leasing the city's port operations and uh, what's been called a proposed contribution of the Auckland International Airport shares. Mr Brown says having the fund would take uh, disaster-proof income streams for the council. So A, it's getting more money, but B, and more sensibly, is that having only two assets concentrated in the very city that they're supposed to protect protect is not sensible. If, for instance, we have a tsunami or yet another monstrous series of floods, or worse still, a volcano, um, the two assets which we've got will also be adversely affected and worth nothing. So a diversified fund will allow us to have something or other to go to in the event that something goes wrong. Well, we are joined now by Auckland Councillor John Watson. Kia ora, welcome to the programme. Good morning. Uh, just just clarify for us, what is your understanding of how the Auckland International Airport shares would uh, play into this fund? Uh, the contribution, does that mean the sale of the shares or something different? Well, well of course, they've, they've already um, sold off a big chunk of them, $833 million to, to pay down debt, and um, that debt has just shot back right up again to the over $12 billion it was just a couple of months ago. So what he's proposing would be to um, capitalise on the council's remaining shares in, uh, in Auckland Airport uh, and, uh, and also throw in the proceeds from a kind of generational sale of the ports of Auckland. When you say capitalise, does that mean sell? Yeah, well, that, that's where the fund would be would be made up of a of a combination of those two sales, and I guess the point to notice there is that Auckland Council did actually have such a fund just a few years ago. It had a diversified assets portfolio that would have been approaching, you know, nearly a billion um, dollars now. And guess what? That got sold to to pay down debt and um, to just disappear into the ether. So, so we actually had a fund like that, but like a uh, a number of our major assets, it was sold off and, and the proceeds long gone. So could setting up a new fund be a good idea? He's talking about a 3 to $4 billion fund, which would, uh, he says, deliver better return for the investment? Well, I think there's a, there's a real issue of trust here now. The, the council has an ongoing asset sales program that amounts to nearly $500 million over the last four years anyway. Um, with the sales that have occurred thus far, um, the the proceeds of those sales going down to pay debt have then just disappeared and climbed right up. So I, I would say in the first instance there's a real question over trust, uh, whether they will do what they say will they do. And in the case of uh, the port, for instance, essentially um, the public will pay for it as the end user. So um, it's just another form of rate increase really because the, you know, the multinationals that come in, they need to... They need to get um, you know a return on on their capital, and that the end user, you know, the poor old public at the end who end up paying for that. Well, the mayor seems to think that you're not well that the city is not getting enough of a return from those assets. Well, I guess in the in the respect of the port, you know, the the, the port serves a greater economic function. You know, the ports of Auckland is a huge economic engine for our region and, and, and drives the businesses there. So it's not just purely returned. But in actual fact, the dividends from the port um, in recent times um, have have improved. So they're, they're tracking up to 
uh, what will be you know essentially a, a million dollars a week. The industrial relations have have settled down, so we have a really good culture under the new CEO there. So this this sort of talk just really undermines the ports uh, again, uh, and the, the strong recovery that the ports of Auckland ha- have have shown, um, you know, particularly in the last couple of years. Okay, so just to clarify, they, they, he is talking about a temporary lease of the of the operation there. But but in, in terms of the the greater problem here, which is money, uh, what are the alternatives? Well, the, I guess the, the alternatives in the first instance is, is to look at the crippling effects of of the debt. So our interest payments now are over five hundred and thirty million a year. That you know that amounts to nearly one point five million dollars a day uh, that that ratepayers are paying in interest. So there really has to be a far closer examination of that just escalating debt. So we, we sold off nearly a billion dollars worth of assets earlier in the year. That debt level has quickly climbed up within, you but, know, but it might have been months. even it might have been even higher if if those assets, if those shares hadn't been sold. I mean, it would have been, and that money wasn't put into to cutting debt. So, isn't that exactly what the bear is talking well, about? Well, we, we we only have so many income producing assets, and the reason we've got those assets is because legacy councils built them up, invested in them, and saw them as a you know as a, as as the future income producers for Auckland. Now, we've already spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars have been disposed of in assets. There's only a couple of pieces of family silver left now. That's what remains of the airport shares in the ports. Once they're gone, that's it. You know, they're not coming back. In the case of the port, uh, you mentioned 35-year leased um, in, in Australia, which is the model they're following. That sort of lease has just resulted in higher cost, higher container costs, higher cost to the end user. So if we're talking about this as a means of controlling rates, people just pay for it another way. And I would suggest in this instance, they'll be paying more. Okay, so this there's, there is a big split in the council over this and, and over the, the last sale of the shares. So what happens now in terms of uh, consultation and and how you deal with this? Yeah, so, the, you know, this this is about as big as it gets, you know, the future uh, and the stability of the ports of Auckland. So the council will decide next week uh, what um, is to be included in the consultation, and then that consultation will occur um, early next year. So I guess the first instance is to, to agree uh, or, or not agree with what's going out or what's going to be in that consultation, and then depending on what's there, it'll be over to the to the public um themselves to decide. But I would just say, you know, the old story, once bitten, twice shy. We did have a fund such as this. It's gone. I would suggest that this one could well head the same way. Appreciate your time this morning. That is Auckland Councillor John Watson. 17 past eight now. The team behind Auckland Light Rail is still waiting to hear exactly what comes next after a stop work notice was issued for the multi-billion dollar project. The government has agreed to cancel Labor's light rail plans, but it's not clear what it'll do instead. Minister for Transport Simeon Brown says he is busy taking advice on these issues. Amy Williams has the story. Four years ago, the government's pledge to build light rail from Auckland Central to the airport was under the spotlight in Parliament. Will there be spades in the ground on light rail during this term of Parliament? On behalf of the Prime Minister, we don't build uh, railways with spades on the ground anymore. 
Labour's light rail plan had the potential to take up to 14,500 cars off the road, but the price soared to $14.6 billion when it was decided to partly tunnel the rail line. Documents shared with RNZ show volcanic rock was found to stretch 40 metres deep in some parts, and Auckland's mayor said if it went ahead, it should be above ground. Despite its chequered history, light rail is somewhat of an enigma in Eden Valley one of the inner-city suburbs it was touted to benefit. I've no idea, to be honest. I haven't heard anything about it. (laughs) Yeah, is that the tunnel one that's going on, or is that totally different? Who is planning on, like, nixing it entirely? I have no idea what's going on with Lara. Sorry. (laughs) RNZ found one Mount Eden local, Daryl Webb, who keeps track of light rail's developments. I don't believe it's feasible to, with the current designs, to put a train into the airport and expect tourists to use it. They'd need to, if they're coming from the city, they'd need to get on the underground, get off at Mount Eden with their luggage and then go into another train. Auckland Light Rail is a Crown-owned entity. A spokesperson says they acknowledge expectations to stop work and are awaiting further guidance from the government. Dominion Road was considered for light rail's route to the airport. Sandringham Road got the nod instead, but the exact route and station locations were not released. Dominion Road Business Association manager Gary Holmes says some form of mass transit is needed. It's not unexpected. Certainly the the new government has signalled that that was their intention. I guess our main concern around that is what replaces it. The City Council had already stalled zoning on large blocks of land between the city and the airport in anticipation of light rail going ahead. With the change of government, the standstill continues. And Gary Holmes says they've been waiting for certainty on zoning for far too long. Going up and having more intensive developments is the key. And in places like Dominion Road, that's where it's an obvious place to happen. So we're keen to see that the rules are clarified and that people have again have certainty over what they can do with their properties. Auckland Transport Chief Executive Dean Kimpton says they'll reprioritise projects, but light rail is still an option for the city if it's above ground. Surface light rail is always an option. So we would agree that, and and we felt that service light rail could deliver a significant amount of the benefit down that city centre Monaco route, uh, and certainly an option out to the northwest as well. It is cheaper. Meanwhile, Transport Minister Simeon Brown says he'll meet with Auckland's mayor in due course. Amy Williams with that story on what comes next after the axing of Auckland light rail. It is a quarter to eight. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 